Our scripture reading tonight will be from the book of Exodus, chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. We are in the book of Exodus, chapter 5. After all this time in Exodus, we're finally getting to the actual plagues. Remember, men, the men's retreat next weekend. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be time to be together and just enjoy each other with some interesting activities and, and meeting this guy I've been telling you about. And I hope that you find him as compelling as, as I do, and he's excited about meeting us. Youth group looks tired. Totally. Okay. Glad you're here. Exodus chapter 5. This, more, this, this evening what we're going to do is hook you up for a spiritual heart cath. And our goal is to kind of get that main muscle of the Christian life pliable. Chances are, just by living in a, in a fallen world, it gets very difficult to keep our heart soft so that it's ready to, to be molded and shaped according to what God wants it to be. As you know, when you have like a heart disease of some kind, a hardening of the arteries, the blood can't quite flow through your body from your heart to all the spots it's supposed to go to to give it life. When that happens, you are in grave danger because your body needs it for life. Well, the same thing happens with your spiritual heart too. It's, it's a vibrant muscle of the heart that keeps us going attuned to what God has us to do and to say and to think. Temptations mount up around us. They have the power to harden our hearts if we're not really careful. And we uh, find ourselves needing to flush that system out with, t- with uh, repentance. We get winded and tempted to give in sometimes. The difficult challenges and trials of life confront us and we need this endurance and this perseverance deep from within. And sometimes after a while of doing that, we're tired and worn out like the disciples in the garden. The lack of support, maybe the failure of spiritual relationships with other people cause that hardening to continue and suddenly we're just like Pharaoh. Because in Exodus chapter 5 as we get started, you know something. You know something hung over from, from, I just said hung over, didn't I? Uh, Carried over from Genesis. That's terrible to say hung over in church about something God does. But it's, he says, all the way back in Genesis 15 to Abraham, he says, Abram actually, and he says, I'm going to send my people down somewhere else for 400 years until the sins of the Amorites is completed and they can come and take the promised land. And they're going to advance in number, but I'm going to bring my people out after those 400 years. And in case they forgot, Jacob, who was who was very tentative and hesitant about going to to Egypt with Joseph, God says, I want you to go. That's part of my plan. God has had this plan, but now it's time for this plan to move the opposite way. Now it's time for God to move his people from Egypt into the promised land. We've known this for 400 years, but the time has now come, and God has plans for his people. But guess what? Pharaoh has plans for those people too, and it's not to move them one mile. Pharaoh has 
become an obstacle to God's plan. Pharaoh is getting free hard labor out of these people. He doesn't care for them, but he loves what they do for him. He has no idea about what God's plan is, and it really doesn't matter to him at all anyway. He doesn't even know God at all, and he views this as himself as some kind of divine being, so his plans will be carried out, and he's going to keep Israel working for him. This plan is so beneficial to him, he can't imagine a single good reason for letting them go for any amount of time. No one's going to get this hard-headed, divine-being person to change his mind and the policies he has toward the Israelites. So now what you have is God has a plan for these people, Pharaoh has a plan for these people, and it's not the same plan. We have an impasse. Now this is the setting as Exodus 5 opens up, and Moses and Aaron have been sent by God. Let's try this the easy way first. Let's just go and ask. Maybe if we just ask him to let him go, he will. And so what do they do? Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Here's what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go that they may hold a fast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let you go? I don't know the Lord, and I'm not going to let Israel go. Here's the first symptom of a hardened heart. God's word is not enough. It's not that we don't know what he says. He's very clear. It's not that it's confusing. It's not that I'm uncertain about what it does in relation to me. It's very crystal clear, but it's not enough. I know what God says, but you know what? That's not enough to get me to do what God says. It's one thing for him to say it. It's another thing for me to know it. And it's a completely other thing for me to do it. And there's a gap between knowing what God says and doing what God says that the hardened heart forms and suddenly you can't get yourself to do what you know God wants you to do. I want to leave Pharaoh alone for a minute. I'm not going to pick on him for a few seconds. We have in our hands the Word of God. You would agree, right? The, the Scripture that we have is the Word from God. God breathed, useful for everything for righteousness. And I hear people sometimes lament, I wish I knew what God thought about this or that. There's an awful lot we can know of what God says. What we believe, at least I assume we do as the church, is when we make decisions and decide what we're going to do for our lives, we consult Scripture, and if God has said something clear about something, we go with it. God has provided us light for a dark world. How dumb would it be to grope around in darkness when we have a source of light? Because thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. Why go through this world without any light when the light's been provided? And yet, though we have the light, sometimes we choose the darkness. We know what he has to say about the truth and about purity and about how to treat the least of these. We know how he would have us treat our enemies. It's not a problem of exegesis or hermeneutics. It's not even a problem with translations. I don't care if you have the KJV, NIV, the message, or some strange, unorthodox compilation of God's Word. It's all in agreement on these things. It's like the objection of the rich man and the rich man in Lazarus' parable when the rich man says, you know, if you'll send somebody up from the dead, surely that my brother will listen. And God says, or Abraham says, for God, they have the Word. That's all they need. Because he thought if a man named Lazarus raised from the dead, they wouldn't listen anyway. And what do you know? When Lazarus was raised from the dead, they killed him. 
or wanted to kill him, I should say. But for so many people, even us Christians who are believers in Scripture, sometimes God's Word really is not enough. It's almost like we need something else to compel us to actually do what it says. Maybe we've had it so long that we think that God would have updated his thoughts if he knew how things would change. His position on sexual ethics would be different today than the, than the way he put it in Scripture if he would just know what today was like. Maybe it's just that there's this time lapse between God and, and what he said and the things in history so that it nullifies his words, kind of like a chronological snobbery. Or, or maybe God didn't realize what we would face and the trials that would get so much tougher with time. Today's pressures are too great on marriage, or it, it's harder to, to be able to love your enemies now than it used to be. We're so much smarter and sophisticated today. We're so enlightened. That old Bible surely can't be still the same truth that guided those people thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago. And while some things really aren't as clear as other things, there are so many clear things in Scripture that we should know and be able to handle the confusing things of today. It's not that God isn't speaking. It's that people aren't listening, and sometimes even us, God's own people, just don't care what he says. They don't equate the Bible with the real word of God. The Bible is God's revealed will, and anything the Bible says is what he thinks about things with no expiration date included. It's not subject to the winds and the waves of fads and fashions and the changing of human tastes. So one symptom of a heart that's hardened is that it's no longer good enough for you to know what God says about something. You know what it says, but that's not enough to make you do it. It comes out like this. I know what the Bible says, but dot, dot, dot. And however you complete that sentence negates the rest. And most of the time, it's the same as for Pharaoh, the same reason. You have another plan in your mind you'd rather go with. There's something you want to do that benefits you more, and you'd rather do it than what God says. And because of this clash, it started in the garden, and it's still going today. The problem with sermons like this is a lot of time is spent diagnosing the problem, and we already know it in graphic detail for ourselves. People have sex before marriage when they know the Bible clearly says you shouldn't. People cheat on taxes and, 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 and steal from employers because they want to. And they don't want the fact of what God said to get in the way of their fun. They don't, I don't want God's word to get in the way of a better tax return or a better reputation. But you do this enough and you'll never pay attention to anything God says. What is going to solve this? The hardened heart. My eyes are dry. My heart is hard. What can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil. And what's, gonna what's it going to take to get us to care more and, and really want to value what God says to where it becomes the absolute in our lives and, and we don't try to go beyond it? And, and I think it's in the, key, the key is in Pharaoh's words in verse 2. Notice he says, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't even know him. The problem is not the word, the problem is the God who spoke the word. We don't know who he is, so how do we get people to care enough and know God enough to care about what he actually says? If we understand his identity, who is this speaking? Maybe we'll more likely actually pay attention to his words, the way Paul has to preach in Acts 14 and Acts 17. To people who didn't have Bible class all their lives, how do you convince them? How do you get them to know God? And he starts with creation. 
Think about it this way. You're about to give a speech somewhere. Everybody hates speeches. But one of the ways you motivate hearers is that you use quotations. A recognized authority has something to say on your topic. And it's like using an advertisement. That's why Michael Jordan can sell underwear, right? No one's offered me a dime to sell underwear, I guess because I'm not Michael Jordan or any number of other reasons for that. But that's why quoting Abraham Lincoln is effective. Or maybe a Ronald Reagan or an FDR. But if you're going to try to impress an audience and you quote Ralph Gomer, they're going to look at you and go, I don't know why I should care what Ralph Gomer says. I have no idea who he is. I'm just making up a name. It's sort of like if I have a medical problem, I'm going to go talk to Dr. Carlton. But if Tony Pearson gives me medical advice, I'm pretty sure I'm going to ignore it. It's all in the credence of who spoke it. Why should our young people care what the Bible says? This is what the world is crying out for us. Before they'll listen to what the Bible says, they're going to say, why should I care what it says? I'm not asking what it says. The world is saying, why? Why does it matter? How is this different from any other book? And once again, we have to get them to submit to it, right? What do they really know about this God? We've got to talk about God before we talk about Scripture, it seems. I have a theory about this. The reason, the reason this hardening of the heart is happening so much today with God and with Scripture is because it's happening in every arena of life. People respect no words of no person because there is no respect for people anymore. When you consider the fifth commandment, honor your father and your, and your, and your mother, and then listen to this one, Ephesians 6. Is that on the screen? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. My question for you is this. Who is this written to? Read it carefully and tell me who it's written to. Are you going to get your one and two and three-year-old children to read Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 and say, See, you should respect mommy and daddy. Are they going to respect you because they know what Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 says? This is written to parents. If your kids are going to, expect, are going to respect you, you have to train and expect them to respect you. They're not going to care what Colossians or Ephesians says. They're not going to care about that. Even the, the fifth commandment was written largely to adults, honor your father and your mother, about taking care of your parents in their old age. I don't know what, at what age we can quote this to our kids and expect them to respect us because the Bible says it, but even before that, we've got to expect and demand that respect from them in the way that we train and raise them. And the problem is, they've got to respect you before they'll listen to Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. Same thing with us. If I could insert myself in a time machine and go back and talk to Pharaoh, and I had a few moments to talk to Pharaoh and say, listen, let me tell you who this God is. And Moses never has that chance. I think he's kind of thrown out of his presence immediately. But if you have a chance to talk to Pharaoh and say, here's why you should listen. This is the God that you're talking to or who's talking to you. Number one, he's the God who made heaven and earth with just words. You know how the world got here? God spoke it and it created. You still believe that? I don't care about evolution stuff. You could, there's certain evolutionary things that are absolutely true. But how many of you think God actually spoke and the world came about? How many actually believe that? Okay, great. You believe that, and that's one of the reasons you listen to Scripture, but there's some people who don't. You've got to explain this to them. His words matter. His words accomplish. He speaks, and they happen. And if people disregard his words, 
They will never come back void. They'll accomplish something. He's got a power that's not to be ignored. And so each of the, each of the plagues that comes is related to another one of the Egyptian gods. There's a god of the Nile. And in that first plague, God turns the water into blood. And he says, your God of the Nile can't stop me because I'm the God of the world. I'm, I'm usurping his authority. There's another one of hail and weather. There's another one of reproductive stuff as far as crops are concerned. And each one of these gods is taken on with one of these plagues. And God is saying, do you see? I'm the God of creation. I'm the God who created it, and I'm the God who sustains it. That's why you listen to me. He's the God who knows all things and only speaks truth. He's smarter than us, higher than us, wiser than us, and he has in his grace revealed his thoughts to us in the words of Revelation. Even when the wisest people belittle and ridicule the Bible for its teachings, we better know that God's wisdom is far superior and will have its day. This is where the song, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord, fits. I'm going to go with him over the smartest of humanity. He's the God who is eternal and everlasting, and so are his words. His ideas and his thoughts and his teachings do not change. A perfect being cannot change because he's perfect. And as Peter says, this world and it's it's passing away, but the Word of God lives forever. He's the God who's graciously provided His words, and, and He's got a very distinct purpose. I set before you, He says over and over again, life and death. If you follow my words, it's life. If you ignore my words, it's death. My word separates. The boundary between life and death is governed and bounded by the Word of God. And finally, He's the God who's going to judge that world by His Word. It's a, it's a criteria. And he had total control, and the plagues become a way for God to introduce himself to Pharaoh. And he comes to know God through these plagues. As an example of this, what happening with Israel, this hardening of the heart, listen to Judges chapter 2. This is what happened in the book of Judges. After that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation came up after them who did not know the Lord or the work he'd done for Israel. You know what went wrong in Judges? A group of people didn't know God or what he'd done. So they just did what was right in their own eyes, and you know what happens with that in the book of Judges. And do you know what's going on today? We're raising up generations who don't know God and what he's done for us. And when you do this, they're ignorant of him, and if they don't know who God is, why do they care what he says? There's a hardening of the heart. And even if you do know God, Romans chapter 1, there's so many that just voluntarily repress that. They hold that down and do their own thing, acting like there is no God. Peter has a unique way of talking about this, and I want you to listen to this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you've tried God, if you've tried being obedient to Him, and you found Him and experienced Him, and you found Him to be good, you'll want more. There's only one thing you want after you've had my grandmother's apple pie. You know what it is? More. You'll only want more. And he says, those people, those people who try out God, who test Him, 
who decide whether I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to try obeying him and see what happens. And they say, "Wow, that he's good. It's good to be." I, I'm going to assume that in this crowd on a Sunday night, every one of you could say this: "I've tasted the Lord, and He is good." Is that true for everybody? I've tasted the Lord, and He's good, and therefore I'm going to go for some more. Malachi chapter three puts it this way: They weren't putting the entire tithe into the offering. And God was disappointed because he says, I've told you how much I want. I want a tithe from you. And so they weren't putting this tithe in. And God says, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll make this offer for you. Test me. Test me and see. Go ahead. Put that 10% in. You don't think you can put this in without it hurting you. You don't think that you can make it through the week with, by, by putting this in. Test me and see if I won't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing you don't have room for it. Just test me. Try it and see. Just try living in obedience to me for a while and see if your life isn't better. Not perfect. Not everything that you want in life. But just see if the Lord is good. Some of the visits this week visit one person. I'm surprised how many there are in this number. One person who a few years ago lost their daughter, buried their daughter. It was a gut-wrenching time for her, and she just talked about how the Lord has sent people to her and helped her through that difficult time. Have you tasted? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you tried it? So many people in the world look at what God says and says, that's old-fashioned. There's no way in the world that me restraining myself this way or me denying myself this way could ever be good. There's no way in the world that I could be happy and joyful in life by doing that stuff. Every Sunday morning you guys get up and do this? And I want to say, test me and see if I won't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing you don't have room for it. Listen to the psalmist, and this sounds like a, you know, we talk about the Bible every once in a while, and we talk about the Old Testament and all those people going around. This is how it looked like Old Testament believers are like this. Got a burden, got to, got to do all these verses, 613 commands. Listen to this Old Testament guy speak. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than my teachers. To your testimonies are my for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to, the, to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Doesn't this sound like a burdened churchgoer who hates it and wishes he could break free and be his own man? Doesn't that sound like somebody who resents the truth? He loves the law because when he looks at it, and after he's lived by it, he realizes it's the best life you can live. But you see, it doesn't sound like it. You just have to taste, try it, test it. We all struggle with this to some extent. There are certain areas of our hearts that are hard. The constant goal is to nurture a, an awareness of God and a relationship with him so that you care about what he says. The problem with the word for us so often is it's just some objective thing in a book with covers on it. These are the words of our God spoken to us, and the more you know God, the more you care about what he says, and you long to know every word like, like a long-distance relationship between a husband and a wife in the military, and he gets a letter from her, and he saves them, and he devours them, and he keeps them, and he looks at them all the time. That's what we do with the Word of God if we know him and value him. 
Here's my challenge. Just try it. Now, this doesn't seem to fit a Sunday night crowd, does it? Taste it. You're like, we are the people who do this. We know this already. But even believers have certain areas of our lives where we hold distrust with God's Word. We think if we did this, it wouldn't really produce it. And so we kind of justify and rationalize ourselves. And so here's the two things I would say as a real solution. Study the, the God of Scripture. Quit just knowing about, what God's, about God from other people. Trust His revelation. And particularly in the Old Testament, get to know who God is. Develop a relationship with Him and then make yourself obey even when you don't feel compelled to. Even when you don't understand, or agree, or find yourself motivated to do it. When we have stubborn hearts that know what the will of God is, and we close ourselves off to it, we shut ourselves off from the best life we can live. And the only way to overcome a hardened heart is to make ourselves obey, submit and discipline to what he has to say. Even if we have to deny ourselves, and even if we have to say, I don't like this, but I'm going to do it anyway, and you taste the Lord in that obedience, and you'll find that he's good. Consider an area of truth that you've been running from or rejecting or debating or protesting. And instead of doing all that, if you're certain it's the truth from the Word of God, make yourself do it and see what happens. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then when you taste Him, you'll say, give me more. Open that Word some more and give me some more and show me other areas of my life when I experience this kind of wholeness. Keep, church, your heart soft. Life has a tendency to make us hardened this way. Even those of us who've been in the church a long time, we reach this point where very clear teachings of Scripture are, are, are things that just don't motivate us anymore. And that's old, or that's ancient, or that's what they used to say, that's what they did in the 50s. Just because it's old, we sometimes discard it. We need to be obedient to the truth and keep our hearts soft. The first symptom that your heart might be hardened is that you know what the Word of God says, but it's not enough to compel you to obey. Make yourself just as much as you run a marathon or practice to do a 5K. Make yourself obey that Word. And when you do, you'll taste that the Lord is good. It's a great crowd for testimony. If there's anyone who needs to respond, your heart's grown hard, you just, for some reason, you're not responsive to the Word of God, and you want it softened again, maybe you can do that on your own. Maybe you've got those areas in your life already, you say, I know what I need to do, but maybe some of you need some extra help from this congregation. Group of people who know the struggle of keeping our hearts soft and pliable with God, we'd love to pray with you, or if we can't do it, God can, through the waters of baptism or through the forgiveness and the grace that flows from it. If there's anything we can do for you this evening, make it known as we stand and sing the invitation song.